An amazing story today of the power of the gospel. Man, you're going to just love this. Some memories are permanently seared into your and my childhood brains with a hot iron of adrenaline and fear. For five-year-old Greg Steer, it was the memory of his mom walking back to the house after facing off with his stepdad with a splintered, bloodied baseball bat in her hand. Greg Steer was raised in a violent family. He never knew his biological father because his mom had met his dad at a party. It was a one-nighter. She got pregnant, and he left town. Though his mom almost aborted him, in a last-minute twist, Greg's life was spared for so much more. You're going to hear the so much more. Unlikely Fighter is Greg's book. It's the incredible story of how God showed up in Greg's life and how he can show up in yours as well. This is a memoir of violence and mayhem and how God can transform everything, even your situation right now. All right, so Greg, uh, just so excited to hear your story. You've got this brand new book, Unlikely Fighter. Talk about your family's transformation. This is a this is like a God of the Bible miracle. Yeah, you know, it really is. It was, uh, you know, writing this book was pretty traumatic. It's technically a memoir, but, you know, there's 22 chapters. The first 21 happened before I turned 16. So it's really about growing up in this crazy family. What I tell people is I don't come from a typical religious church-going, pew-sitting, hymn-singing family. I come from a family filled with bodybuilding, tobacco-chewing, beer-drinking thugs. And that's just the women, you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> my, my family was just violent. And uh, three of my uncles were competitive bodybuilders. The fourth one was a bouncer at the toughest bar in Denver. The fifth one was a golden gloves boxer, judo champion and war hero. Right. Mm-hmm. So the Denver mafia nicknamed my uncles, the crazy brothers. So when the mafia thinks your family's dysfunctional, that's not good. Right. right? And I was raised, you know, a scared little kid. I wasn't a tough kid, a scared, kind of like young Sheldon (laughs) in the hood, terrified of my uncles, terrified of my neighborhood, just terrified in general. And a lot of violence in my family, a lot of anger. You know, you look up toxic masculinity and you'd see a picture of my family Mm. and everything was in a downward spiral. And I was terrified and out of nowhere. This hillbilly preacher from the deep south, whose nickname, for whatever reason, was Yankee, <laughs> planted a church in the suburbs of Denver. And I found out years later, his dad actually was a daddy was a counterfeiter in the backwoods of Georgia uh, and a bootlegger. And Yankee was born on the run from the law when they were in Pennsylvania. And so his dad nicknamed him Blank. Yankee. I won't fill in the blank because this is a Christian radio show. Sure. But blank Yankee. So, but he kept the name Yankee. So he plants a church in the suburbs and on a dare from a guy named Bob Daly who knew my uncles, but was really, you know, not ready to share the gospel with them, kind of nervous, dared Yankee. Yankee went down to my uncle Jack's door. My uncle Jack was the toughest one of my uncles, literally looks like a beefed up version of the Wolverine. Big lamb chop sideburns, cats <laughs> everywhere, oh talk like this, bodybuilder, arm wrestler, once went to jail for choking two cops unconscious at the same time oh who were trying to arrest him. And Yankee knocked on his door and said, hey, I'm here on a dare from Bob Daly to tell you about Jesus. 
And my Uncle Jack, you know, no shirt on, tats everywhere, two beer cans, one for drinking beer, one for spit and chew. Goes, uh, all right, I don't know Jesus. I know Bob. I'll give you five minutes. <laughs> and Yankee explained the gospel, not religion, but a relationship with God. That going to heaven was not by being good. It was by being a sinner, knowing you couldn't save yourself and believing that Jesus died in your place for your sin and rose from the dead. And if you trust in him alone, you have eternal life. And Yankee said, does that make sense? My Uncle Jack responded, hell yeah. That was the sinner's prayer was hell yeah. <laughs> and he trusted Christ. And he started telling everybody. I mean, he literally brought 250 people out to Yankee's church in one month. I mean, street fighters, bodybuilders. Wow tough guys. And, you know, I'm a little kid seeing my toughest uncle transformed by a simple message. And eventually that, that became a domino effect in my whole family. And over the course of a few years, everyone ended up putting their faith in Christ. That's incredible. Wow. You just made my day. (laughs) I'm so grateful for the gospel. I'm so grateful for the boldness of this preacher who's still alive today, still preaching. You need to get a hold of this book. It's called Unlikely Fighter. I'm going to share this as a Christmas gift. The amazing story of Greg Steer. Greg was raised in a family of bodybuilding, tobacco-chewing, fist-fighting thugs. And according to Greg, that's just the women in the family. That's a quote from Greg. And yet this southern preacher in the Denver area, southern preacher Yankee, came to Denver and started reaching out with the gospel. And on a dare... This Southern preacher Yankee reached out to Greg's uncle Jack, who chokeholded two police unconscious at one time. And Yankee shared the gospel with Jack, and Jack gave his life to Jesus. And then the domino effect just swept through this violent family. It's, it's just amazing. Tell me about the Christmas surprise. So, yeah, when I was about six years old, you know, much of my family had not yet come to Christ yet. You know, the dominoes were starting to fall. But we were at my grandparents' house for a Christmas, you know, celebration. We opened our presents. I was just standing in the corner, like normal, quiet, opening my handful of presents. And right before we were going to just go, you know, grab lunch in the kitchen, my Uncle Dave goes, hey, hold on, everybody. I got one more present. It's for little Greg. And nobody ever called me out like that. Almost, I was shocked. Everybody was shocked. So I walk over there, you know, and he gives me this present. And I'm thinking, my goodness, for the first time, I'm seen in my family. Yeah. I just whispered about it, but seen, you know, because all my family was worried I wouldn't make it in our neighborhood because I wasn't tough. I wasn't a tough kid. You know, I didn't crack skulls. I cracked books. You know, I was a little reader, quiet kid. I opened the present up and it's a girl's doll. And I think at first, this is a mistake. I go, it's a girl's doll. And he goes, yeah, I figured you don't have a dad, so you like to play with dolls like a little girl. Gosh. And I snapped, you know, and I shoved it in his stomach. I go, ain't no girl. And all my uncles are like, oh, you see the temper on him? Maybe he is one of us. Oh, well, I didn't think it was funny. And, you know, that could have really sent me in a different direction, but yep. it sent me on a search for God because I knew – I didn't know the gospel, but I knew – that the answers were in the Bible. And I, I began to study my little red Bible with a flashlight underneath the kitchen sink, hmm. looking for my identity. It really was a search for my identity. And you can ask anybody in my family from that moment on, 
I was super serious about trying to figure out life and God and my purpose. And people say, well, kids can't understand this. I go, yeah, I don't agree with that. I think kids can understand. I think a lot of kids are asking those kinds of questions because I know I was. And as painful as it was to be embarrassed like that in front of my entire family, I'm grateful that God used that to really begin to help me search for him. And so when did you cross the line? What take us to that moment? So my grandparents were Christians and they went to a Baptist church. Now you got to realize they had six kids, all but one were rebels, like intense, violent rebels. So I think my grandparents felt, you know, guilty about how their kids had turned out, so they took me and my brother to Bethany Baptist Church. And, you know, they they try to share the gospel there, but they were using terms like ask Jesus in your heart, which, by the way, anybody listening to this, don't use those terms with kids because it doesn't make sense to the average kid. I thought, man, come in my heart. Are you there over Jesus? Knock three times on my pancreas if you made it. I did not understand the gospel. (laughs) And that whole behold, I stand at the door and knock. That passage is not written to unbelievers. It's written to the church of Laodicea. It's believers, you know. So finally, I heard somebody talk about the cross, that Jesus paid the price for our sin on the cross, that he was buried, he rose again, and you got to trust in him alone, you're saved. And then Jesus comes into your life as a result of that. I'm like, oh. So two years later, after the, that Christmas surprise gift, I put my faith in Christ, and my grandma wrote it in my little red Bible that had been reading underneath the kitchen sink, June 23rd, 1974, Greg Steer receive Jesus Christ as a Savior. And I still have that little red Bible today as a reminder to me of the power of the gospel when it's given clearly. So by this time, my, you know, my uncle, my uncle Jack had trusted Christ. And soon after, my uncle Bob came to Christ full on. He had actually trusted Christ as a kid, but he got in a barroom brawl with a guy. Uh, he was a bouncer and ended up beating this guy to death. His heart stopped. Wow. Cops arrested my Uncle Bob, threw him in the back of the squad car. He saw the EMT start to work on this guy, trying to get his heart pumping again. They took him away in the ambulance. And in the back of that squad car, my Uncle Bob dedicated his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. They did resuscitate the guy. The next day, my Uncle Bob was freed from jail. And a year later, was at Florida Bible College, where he ended up graduating from. And So, again, all this stuff is happening, you know. My Uncle Jack gets saved. I eventually get saved. My Uncle Bob dedicates his life to the Lord in the back of a squad car. And I'm starting to see the gospel roll like a tsunami through my family. Greg Steer is with me and you. His brand new book is called Unlikely Fighter. Greg was raised in a family of bodybuilding, tobacco-chewing, fist-fighting thugs. These are his words in the Denver area. He never knew his biological father because his mom had met his dad at a party. She got pregnant and he left town. Though his mom almost aborted him in a last minute twist, Greg's life was spared for so much more. It's just like Jesus to do this so much more because the gospel changes everything. And it started when a Southern preacher named Yankee Nicknamed Yankee, came to the Denver area, started sharing the gospel, and he shared the gospel with the meanest uncle in Greg's family, Jack. And Jack gave his life to Jesus. And then the domino effect just began throughout this whole family, changing this violent family 
into a God-honoring, peace-loving family that is sharing the gospel like crazy to this day. So you came to Jesus, and the most natural thing, of course, to do for a kid who's, how old were you at the time? Eight. Yeah. The most natural thing to do for an eight-year-old is to flip off the devil. Yeah, that's what I did. I That's what I thought. I thought, <laughs> well, you know, I was not a street fighter. You know, I mean, the book's called Unlikely Fighter for a reason, because I was an unlikely fighter fighting an unlikely enemy. And I realized, you know what, I'm not going to fight literal gangs because I don't have the body for it and I don't have the makeup for it and I don't have the desire for it. But there's another gang that's the toughest of them all, and that's Satan and his army of demons. So if there's one if there's one being in this universe, I'm thinking to myself, I can flip off, it's the devil. And I remember when I was third grade, right after I come to Christ, I'm walking down Brown Elementary hallway of this public school called Brown Elementary. And in between classes, I got both middle fingers pointed straight down. And my teacher stopped me because, what are you doing? I looked up at him in disgust a little bit and said, I'm flipping off the devil. What do you think I'm doing? <laughs> and he just kind of shook his head and I just kept going. And in a sense, you know, I've been flipping the devil off ever since, you know, just trying to reach as many lost souls as I possibly can with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, I don't, I don't recommend anybody listening actually flipping off the devil. I was eight at the time. I didn't know any better. Sure. Right? But to realize we do have an enemy, and that's the same enemy that had destroyed much of my family, you know, in those early years. And so he is a real enemy, and uh, it's a real battle. And we're all unlikely fighters in this battle for lost souls. Yeah. Yeah, and one day he's going to burn forever. That'll be the most, one of the most joyous moments in the story of God. Yep. When pure evil is destroyed forever. Forever in the lake of fire. Yep. It's going to be a celebration much greater than the one last Saturday when Michigan beat Ohio State. Or, yeah, or last Sunday when the Denver Broncos beat the Chargers. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about your mom's transformation. So Ma took a little longer. So my Ma was, you know, she's got these five street fighting brothers that are all afraid of her. My Uncle Jack, in a serious conversation when I was in high school, goes, hey, you want to know the key to beating your Ma in a fist fight? I'm like, no. He's like, no, I'm going to tell you. You got to fight her like she's a dude. I go, okay, I appreciate that. I'm not going <laughs> to fight my Ma. Because my most vivid childhood memory was when I was five years old. I was playing with a a little plastic bat on the front porch, a little wiffle ball, and in North Denver, and a car pulls up, a brand new car, a guy sitting in there, and I focus my eyes. It's a guy that my mom had married months earlier who had left us. We had no idea. He was just up and gone. And one day, out of the blue, he pulls up. I yell inside, Mommy, Mommy, you know, one of my daddies is here or something. And she's doing the dishes, smoking a cigarette, looks out the window, and she's like, Paul, that blank and blank, I won't fill in the blanks, jerk, you know, where's the bat? And I try to give her my little plastic bat. She didn't want that one. She wanted the Louisville Slugger, the actual bat, reaches behind the door, grabs it, runs out. He's still sitting in the car, cigarette still hanging in her mouth, and she curses him out and knocks out his front windshield, knocks out his headlights, takes off his side rear mirror in between She's taunting him, get out of the car. Come on, tough guy, get out of the car. And she starts doing body damage on the car. 
And you could almost see the thought bubble above his head. Should I get out? <laughs> well, <laughs> he got out, which was a mis- tactical mistake because Maud lit him up and beat him bloody. And he eventually got back in the car, drove off. And for some strange reason, we never saw him again. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, three things as she walks up that sidewalk. One, I will never disobey my mommy again, right? I'm sure. five years old. Yeah. <laughs> Two, the cigarette never left her mouth the whole time, which was pretty impressive. That should go in the Guinness Book of World Records right there. Yeah, that's right. And then three, why is she so mad? And my mom, I discovered years later, when I was 12, that I was a result of a one-night stand. My mom met my biological father at a party. They partied. She got pregnant. He found out he got transferred 2,000 miles away. Didn't want to have anything to do with me. She got in the car, didn't want to stand before my grandparents, you know, her Baptist parents, in shame, once again, drove from Denver to Boston to have an illegal abortion. This is before Roe v. Wade. She stayed with my Uncle Tommy and my Aunt Carol, who were actually believers. You know, he was the one non-rebel in the family. Over the course of months, they talked her out of it, the abortion. And she came back to Denver eight months pregnant. And when she would look at me, oftentimes she would just burst out into tears. And I didn't know why. Wow. So my grandma told me when I was 12, she almost aborted you. And so my ma, to the day that she died, never knew that I knew that she almost aborted me. Matter of fact, I didn't preach it. I didn't write it because I didn't want her to feel the shame. And I knew there was this shame-fueled rage in her. And when I was 11 or 12, I went to Yankee's church, got involved with their youth ministry. Yankee trained us all how to share the gospel. And the first person on my list was my ma. And so from the time I was 12 to the time I was 15, I shared Christ with her. And she's like, you don't know the things I've done wrong. And I knew them all because my grandma told me everything. Right. And finally, by the time when I was 15, I just walked in to the kitchen. And I go, sit down, Ma. And I didn't talk that way to my mom. You need to listen to every word coming out of my mouth right now. I do not want you to go to hell when you die. And you're, you're on your way to hell. And I'm tired of this hell that you're living through. You need to listen to the gospel. And that's kind of the way you got to approach my family. And she goes, okay, she's smoking a cigarette, of course. And I lay the gospel on Jesus died for all your sins. What about the bad ones? They're all bad. They're all nailed to the cross. She takes a drag. She goes, you mean to tell me if I just put my faith in Christ and believe that he died in my place for my sins, I'm forgiven. I go, yeah. She took another drag. She said, I'm in. Hmm. And my family said they're in, they're in. She put her faith in Christ. And for the first time in her life, she had genuine hope. Man, that's it. That's it. That's mic drop right there. And all that shame, Jesus just started to heal her of it. Started to. You know, the last chapter of the book is is in hospice, where my mom was for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, my uncle's cousins are over there. By this time, everybody's saved. You know, my uncles are going into different hospice rooms like, what do you got? You know, stage four cancer. With well, my Uncle Jack tells this one lady, you need Jesus. She goes, I'm Jewish. She goes, we're halfway there. Jesus is Jewish. <laughs> so I'm there with my mom for 40 days and 40 nights, reading Revelation 21 and 22, sharing Christ with the hospice nurses. And when she finally died, I was secretly, this sounds weird, I was glad because I knew for the first time she was genuinely shame-free. Yeah, yeah. She wasn't just sin-free, guilt-free. She was shame-free because of the power of the gospel, Jesus Christ. Tell me about Doug's transformation. Doug, my brother, so he's 
seven years older than me, really struggled with stuff. He was, you know, had epilepsy, learning disabilities. And back then in the 70s, you know, I mean, it, kids just, they were cruel. You know, they didn't call it learning disabilities back then. So he was made fun of a lot, bullied. He fought back. He wasn't, he was no wimp. He got expelled uh, out of middle school and then in high school, started getting in trouble with the law. And finally, one night he snapped and vandalized the next door neighbor's house. He had so much rage. He lived in this apartment complex, just broke in and just totally vandalized their entire house. And cops came, arrested him. Well, the judge had compassion, basically gave the option of, you know, juvenile hall or six months in a mental institute because the judge could see that, you know, my brother just had struggles. And so he chose a mental institute and took his Bible. And in that six months, he, he really, really found God and got serious about Christ. And when he got out, he was on fire for the gospel. And, you know, not super articulate, but he would just lay the gospel out to anybody who would listen, bought a bicycle, took that bicycle all over the city streets of Denver, just telling everybody. One day he pulled up at a stoplight. A car there full of guys on the red light. He goes, This is my opportunity. Knocks on the window. They roll down the window. He starts telling them about Jesus. The light turns green halfway through. They said, We got to go. He said, Well, I'm not done yet. He holds on to the handle. The car takes off 10, 20, 30, 45 miles an hour. Doug's balancing himself, finishing the gospel <laughs> presentation. He finally peels off to safety, saying, I hope you believe. You know, and later on, he tells me the story. I go, Doug, you are an idiot. You could have got sucked under those tires, run over and killed. He goes, it'd be worth it. Wow. It'd be worth it. That's it, man. Those guys can hear the gospel. And so my brother was transformed. My whole family radically transformed by the power of the gospel. And that's really the message of Unlikely Fighter is nobody's beyond the gospel's reach. Mm. And that there's people all around us who desperately need the hope that only Jesus can bring. Yeah. So do not underestimate it, you know? It's the gospel. It's good news. It's not religion. Maybe what you've heard is religion. You got to be a good person. You got to try hard. You got to be moral. You got to be clean. You got to do the work. You got to work hard to get God's favor. And that is not the gospel. The gospel is not rules and regulations and working hard to please God. The gospel is that God has reached down to us. We can't save ourselves. I can't save myself. You can't save myself. I need saving. I need saving from the power of the sin that's in me. I need saving from the penalty of my sin, which is eternal separation from God. We were made to know God, but our sin has separated us from God. And the gospel is the good news that God sent his son into this world. The word of God became a human being, lived the perfect life, that you and I could never live, died the death that we deserve, took the judgment, took the rap that we deserve. He said, my life for your life. And then he rose again to prove that he is the savior and the rescuer of the world. And people saw him alive. There were many eyewitnesses who saw him alive. In fact, 500 people saw him at the same time alive and breathing and it transformed the lives of those early followers of Jesus. So he is risen, and through faith in him, he forgives us of our sins, and he, he gives us his righteousness, and we can stand before God in Christ 
God sees us in Christ. He sees not our sins, but he sees Christ. And then his spirit comes into us and starts to change us. And if you've never heard that, it's, it's, it's a gift. It's a relationship. All you need to do is say, Lord, I just admit it. I need a savior. I am. I realize I am a sinner. I fall short. I need a savior. I just cry out to you and just say, you know what, Lord, I'm in. I'm going to follow you. Greg Steer is with me and you today. Greg has a brand new book. It's his life story. It's called Unlikely Fighter. It's the story of how his violent family, they were feared in the Denver area, how God broke into his violent family, and all of them have come into God's family, and they are just on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. I just feel like just share the gospel. Talk with that person who who thinks who thinks you got to be good enough to get to God. What can you say to that person right now? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, the gospel means good news. And if we had the cure to cancer or the cure to the coronavirus, we would share that cure with everybody. Well, we have the cure to something infinitely worse than cancer. And our friends and family members and neighbors and classmates and teammates are headed somewhere infinitely worse than hell. And that cure is Jesus Christ. And Jesus died in our place for our sin on the cross that he raised from the dead three days later. And now he offers eternal life. He says, I tell you the truth. If you trust in me, you have everlasting life. And that doesn't start when you die and go to heaven. That starts as soon as you believe. It gives you not just a quantity of life, but a quality of life, true life, full life, abundant life, if you simply put your faith in him. So if you've never trusted in Jesus, trust in him right now. And if you already have trusted in Jesus, think of one person. Today, you're going to begin that gospel conversation with. And if you don't know how to do that, you know, I lead a ministry called Dare to Share. We're like Liam Neeson and Taken. We have a very particular set of skills, right? We're going to help you share the gospel. So just go to daretoshare.org. And it's number two, daretoshare.org. And we can help you share the simple message of Jesus. Well, if you've been praying for a long, long time for that person to come into God's family, don't, don't, don't you dare give up praying. Greg Steer is with me and you today. Greg is the founder of Dare to Share, a ministry that is empowering Gen Z, which is the first post-Christian generation in America, but empowering them to know Christ and to make him known. And it's everything you need to know is at dare2share.org, dare2share.org. Greg was raised in a violent, violent family. He describes his family as a family of bodybuilding, tobacco-chewing, fist-fighting thugs, and they lived in the Denver area. His family was feared, but this southern preacher, Yankee, came to Denver and started sharing the gospel and planted a church, and on a dare, he shared the gospel with the most violent person in Greg's family, Jack, his uncle, Jack accepted Jesus, and then the rest of the family just started coming into the kingdom. It's just an incredible story. It's in a brand new book called Unlikely Fighter. So, yeah, as rough as my, you know, my family was and and as tough as my grandma was, years after my family came to Christ and I was a preacher and I was telling stories about Yankee and reaching my uncle Jack and everybody's radical transformation. My grandmother sat me down one day. She goes, I want you to know something. She goes, I know you credit Yankee and rightfully so. 
But you need to also know that your grandma, me, I've been praying every day for the salvation of all my kids and my grandkids. So don't underestimate the power of your praying grandma. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a good reminder that beyond all the radical transformations, behind all the radical transformations, there was a, a kneeling grandma praying for her kids, desperately interceding to God for their salvation. Yeah. Yeah. That should inspire us to just not give up praying, not only not give up sharing the gospel, but not give up praying. Well, yeah. And, and I think, you know, my one uncle that was the real holdout, my uncle Richard, when my grandfather died, my other uncles who are now saved asked me to give the gospel at the funeral and do the sermon. I was 15 years old. And I'm like, guys, get a professional, you know? Mm-hmm. They're like, nope, we, we know you're called to preach. We know you'll give the gospel clear, and we want Richard to hear it clear. Well, 500 people were at the funeral. You know, I did the sermon. I was scared to death. I was 15. I had everybody bow their head and close their eyes. My Uncle Richard was the only one who wouldn't do that. He just shook his head, like, with his eyes open, like, you ain't getting me, boy. Gave the invitation. Many trusted Christ. My Uncle Richard didn't. He thought all his brothers had gone crazy, turning Jesus freaks or something. And... They desperately tried to share Christ with him while he was there. He just, you know, it's like a boxing match. Just, you know, he was just chucking and jiving, moving away from every hit, you know. Mm-hmm. And 12 years later, he came back into town to say goodbye because he had stage four cancer. And it was just, you know, months before he was going to die, weeks or months. And they finally talked him into going to the church where I was a pastor at the time. And there he was again. But this time at the invitation, he bowed his head, closed his eyes. I said, if you're trusting in Jesus now, raise your hand. Boom. He raised his hand. Boom. All my uncles start crying because they're peeking through their fingers down the aisle. <laughs> and so he, uh, three months later, he went to be with the Lord. And in that three months, he shared Christ with more people than the average Christian will share their entire lives. You know, again, behind it all, a praying grandma. She was an unlikely fighter, too. What I like about the title, Unlikely Fighter, it's really not just about me. It's about everyone. We're all unlikely. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And so we're all unlikely fighters in this battle for lost souls. Greg Steer with me and you. And Greg's been sharing the amazing story of his family, a violent family in Denver that was transformed by the gospel. And they are just continuing to be on fire for Christ because the gospel changes everything. And Greg is, the Lord rescued him from that violent family, and they're all believers now. And he's the founder of the ministry Dare to Share, and you just need to know about this, especially if you have Gen Zers in the home or that you interact with Gen Z, that's kids ages 6 to 24, and you can find out more at dare2share.org. Greg Steer. Tell me about Dare to Share. I love this because what you're doing is you're getting teenagers to share the gospel. Yeah, and, and anybody should share the gospel. The, the thing is about teens, they come to Christ quicker and they spread the gospel faster and farther than adults. And so, yeah, we do an annual simulcast called Dare to Share Live. We just did it on November 13th. We'll do it next November, November 12th. It's a free seven-hour inspiration, equipping, and unleashing. We literally had 1,300 churches across the nation participate 
where they're trained, equipped simultaneously and mobilized to go out and share the gospel with friends and also with strangers. Uh, and it's a free event. So it's just dare to share live.org. And we got tons of free curriculum. We have a free face sharing app called Life in Six Words. We've got lots of free stuff for youth leaders, for parents, for teenagers to use. So I just encourage everybody to go to check out dare to share. Again, it's a number two dare to share.org and get fully equipped to share the gospel. And you know what? I was a pastor for 10 years. It's just literally the same training that I use with adults. It's just, it's more fun because we design it for teenagers. So it's a little bit more fun. Can you think of a teenager right now that's been impacted by Dare to Share and they're they're winning people to Jesus? Well, I mean, I can tell you about teens across the nation. I'll just tell you, personally, as a dad, I have a 17-year-old daughter. Last Saturday, the last Saturday of every month, she gets a group of her friends, and I go with them. We go down to the broken parts of the city, and we pray for people. We care for people. We share the gospel. And I've seen my daughter, who's normally shy, when she shares the gospel, she's full of Holy Spirit boldness. Wow. And she looks with the eyes of Jesus at these broken people and desperately pleads for them to come to Christ and her friends, their little God squad. So, yeah, I could tell you stories from across the nation, but I'll tell you, as a dad, it brings me great joy to see my own kids on mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, they are the first post-Christian generation in America ever. It's Gen Z, those between the ages of six and 24. And Greg Steer, who's been with us this morning sharing his amazing story that's in his book, Unlikely Fighter, has a ministry that is just seeing God do amazing things in Gen Z. They're all about um, making Jesus known to Gen Z and equipping Gen Z to make Jesus known. And so winning Gen Zers to Christ and then training them to share the gospel, you can find out more at dare2share.org, dare2share.org. Help us understand Gen, Gen Z, six years old to 24. This is the generation that we need to understand and we need to share the good news with them. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, Gen Z, you know, there's a lot of challenges. It's the first post-Christian generation in the history of the United States. So a lot of kids do not know the story of the gospel at all. So I think we need to look at them as an unreached people group. And I think sometimes it's good. I, I think the advantage is that you're dealing with a blank slate when it comes to the gospel. So you can, you can paint a whole new picture, an accurate picture, with the good news of the gospel of Christ. They're very spiritual. They're also very causal. They love causes. And so I dare to share, we don't call... We don't call it the Great Commission. We call it the cause. It's the greatest cause, the cause to make disciples. And so I think every teen, every Gen Zer needs a king, a cause, and a crew. And all of that is in the Great Commission. You know, Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's what Jesus said. So he's our king. Our cause, go and make disciples. Our crew, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So we want to mobilize these youth groups to be activated. I think Gen Z is an activation generation, but we need to activate them with far more than pizza and games and a short Bible study. They need a mission to live for and die for, and that mission Jesus already gave us. So if they're post-Christian, what grabs their heart? I mean, I know yeah. I know for myself, you know, Jesus, the grace and love of Jesus just crashed into me when I was at my worst morally what does that look like, the love of Christ capturing the heart of a Gen Zer? Well, you know, I think it's in some ways the same. We live in a 
a very anxious generation of teenagers, and COVID has accelerated that nervousness and anxiousness. I think when kids realize, man, there, you know, I can have peace, the peace of God through Jesus Christ, you know, and, and walk with a holy swagger because I, I'm confident about who my father is, my heavenly father, what my mission is. And so I think the gospel hits right at the epicenter of the needs of kids are, not just the felt needs, but the true needs underneath the felt needs. And I think, you know, the way I describe it with teenagers, don't think of it as re- religion. Think of it as a relationship with God and the God who loves you and created you. And, you, you know, you want to walk in that fullness. You want to go to heaven someday, but you want to you want to live your full life today with a holy confidence that can only come through a relationship with God. And that Jesus is the portal, the cross and the empty tomb are the portal through which our sins are forgiven, you know, and you're not just born again into eternal life. You're born again into a new family and a new mission and a new vision and a new life. That really appeals. I mean, I, people say, well, this generation, you know, doesn't really believe. I'm like, hey, we just had 1,300 churches with, you know, tons of kids coming to Christ, youth groups mobilized. This generation is waiting for the church to wake up and realize that there's, you know, a sleeping giant in their midst, and that is teenager, Gen Z. They need to hear the good news, not religion, but the reality that he loves them just as they are, not as they should be, unconditionally. Just share that that story of love. Exactly. I always say there's someone who's dying to meet you. Actually, they died to meet you, and that someone is Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. you know? Loves us that much. Amen.